Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. How did a local politician do on their social assistance diet? Grab your popcorn for Trudeau versus Poiliev. Find out how much the average Canadian household pays in taxes. Learn about a new video game program at Mohawk College. We'll tell you about the Queen and the Cowboy and our summer cruising series rolls into Hamilton Comic Con. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. A couple of weeks ago, you will remember that we spoke with uh, um, uh, NDP MPP here in town about taking a social assistance diet. This was to highlight the challenges that many Ontarians, thousands of Ontarians, face on a day-to-day basis, those who rely on things like ODSP and Ontario Works. Well, now that that two weeks has passed, how did this politician fare on this so-called social assistance diet? Well, let's ask her. Monique Taylor is the new Democrat MPP for Hamilton Mountain and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Monique, good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good morning, Rick. It's nice to be here with you again. How did you do on this social assistance diet? (laughs) Um... Well, uh, and no one can do well uh, living on such a, a, a low amount of money to, uh, to be able to eat, right? And so um, it was definitely a learning experience. Uh, my body uh, definitely went through several transitions. Um, and, um, you know, it was just very um, eye-opening and, and heartbreaking. I mean, I've heard from so many uh, people who are living off social services uh, that are struggling each and every day um, that don't have $100 a month to eat off of, um, that are concerned about their housing, they're concerned about where they're going next, and they're just concerned about how they're going to uh, possibly able to continue to to maintain some sort of lifestyle when the cost of food continues to go up and up and up. Let's refresh our listeners' memory on how this uh, this diet uh, worked. You, you had a limited budget for food. Yes, uh, through uh, we did a we did a formula that was uh, used uh, quite a few times, and what researchers are using. Uh, so it lauded us uh, ninety seven dollars for for two weeks of um, to be able to buy our food. Um, so were you were and, able to stay under that ninety five? Um, I actually, because I had heard from so many people who didn't have that money, um, being me, Rick, of course, I uh, did not uh, touch it. I mean, I spent uh, my, the first grocery shopping that I did of 50 some odd dollars. I just st- stuck it out and made sure that that lasted me and that I didn't have to go back um, so that I was able to to really feel what people are feeling and um and I did, and it was it was pretty tough. Uh, it was really tough, actually. Um, but um, but I was able to uh, maintain it, um, and uh, and I felt real hunger. I mean, like when you when you're hungry and you eat, and then you're still your body is still feeling that same hunger pain. There's something wrong. Like you, and then the the pain, like the actual pain in your stomach from not eating proper food, um, is something that uh, you know people should take it up. They should actually see what it's like. And I mean, I'm talking about policymakers. You know, um, I will continue to call on the the premier and the minister uh, to take on this challenge to actually see what they're legislating people into, um, and uh, and have a real feel of of what that means uh, to to people who are living in social assistance on in this province 
You mentioned that during this two-week social assistance diet in which you had a maximum of $95 to spend on food over two weeks, is that your body went through some some changes. Was this a, a general feel of malaise? Was there a lack of nutrition? Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was definite lack of uh, nutrition. Um, there was uh, no fresh produce whatsoever. Um, my meat intake was very little. I I shopped very poorly and uh, bought some, um, you know, processed chicken fingers that would just didn't didn't cut it. Um, but uh, and beans and eggs. But uh, the you know it, it it just was not able to it, like it. It wasn't able to to satisfy me. Once I actually hit that point of hunger after um, a few days in, uh, you know, um, I was fatigued. I was brain fogged. Like several times I'd be reading, reading, and reading and trying to stick something in my head and, and it wouldn't do it. I would just hand it over to someone in my office and say, please just like read this and translate because it's not happening. Um, emotional. I, I, I live alone, right? So, uh, you know, I went through this process. Uh, pretty much on my own. I stayed away from my friends and family that uh, were were socializing, of course, with drink and, and food. Um, you know, I, I left that alone. I I, I really uh, did my best to uh, to put myself into people's shoes as, as best as I possibly could, which, you know, is, of course, I, I, I'm not able to do, but mentally um you know i i was very emotional a few days um you know and it was just it was really um a very highlighting experience in my life that that i'm not going to forget as you can probably hear I, you can hear the emotion in my voice i mean uh, this is this is really difficult what people are being forced to go through and uh, and we have to do better uh, and we're not going to stop uh, rick we're going to keep amplifying people's voices we're going to i i'm planning on a, a round table um to bring people together to allow people the opportunity to speak and for allow us the opportunity to you know get that recording of their voice uh, to ensure that we are keeping the pressure on until they double the rates. Uh, this this isn't going to stop uh, one way or another, um, you know. And so our next steps are, um, you know, creating a report of people that we've talked to. Um, and then on October 25th, when we return to the legislature, we will hand deliver it to the minister uh, to make sure that uh, that she hears the voices that we've heard. It's kind of a double-edged sword, and we have just a minute to, to discuss this in terms of, you know, not having enough money for food and then going to the grocery store and seeing rising food prices. It's a lose-lose mm-hmm. for these individuals. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the cost of food. Um, and, and I've even challenged the premier of that alone. You know, just go to the grocery store. Say you've got $50 in your pocket and you have to last, make that last for two weeks. Go to the grocery store and don't even buy the stuff. Just look at it. You know what I mean? Like, just do the most minor thing. Just look at the cost of food. Uh, and it has completely gone up. We've gone up, what, over 10% um, uh, for food. We're hearing from people every day. We're hearing from working people who are struggling uh, to put proper food on the table. Imagine having less than $100 a month and still trying to make that work. It's impossible. Absolutely, Monique. Thank you for your time today, and uh, thanks for doing this and and shining a light on uh, the greater need to boost these ODSP rates. Uh, Thank you, uh, Rick. We couldn't do this stuff uh, without uh, your help and being able to raise our voices also, so I really appreciate the time that you've given me.
You got it. Monique Taylor is the NDP MPP for Hamilton Mountain, undergoing a two-week social assistance diet. Obviously, as you heard, found it to be incredibly incredibly tough. And how could it not be to have $95 over a couple of weeks for food? That is a huge struggle. Huge struggle. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I can picture, you know, listening to this song, Justin Trudeau and Pierre Poiliev doing the karate chops and the kicks and, you know, having the bandanas. They're ready. They're ready to go. They're ready to tussle verbally, of course. I mean, they're got their verbal barbs sharp as attack. For me, this is, you know, as I wouldn't call myself a political junkie, but I do find this sort of political posturing and debating, not necessarily the mudslinging, but the back and forth thoroughly entertaining. And the way that they twist the words and try to get their points across, I, I find really enthralling. It's Trudeau versus Poiliev. Yeah, there's some other players involved, but really, let, let's allow these games to begin. Here to give her thoughts on uh, how this tussle of words in the House of Commons will play out over the next weeks or months is Jean-Vive Tellier, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. She joins us now. Uh, professor Tellier, good morning. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Rich. Are you as excited as I am to see Trudeau and Poiliev go at each other in the House of Commons? Oh, yes, I am as excited as you are. And I was listening to the period question uh, on Monday, uh, on Tuesday, where uh, when Trudeau was not there. Uh, and even then, there were some very interesting uh, thing going on. For instance, you know, Pierre Poiliev, uh, as the new leader of the Conservative, do ask the first question at period question. And uh, the person that answered him, so it was not the prime minister, it was the minister of tourism. So normally it's a low ranking minister which is kind of surprising. And so you could say, okay, uh, the battle has already begun, even with subtle decision. Uh, and to have instead the vice uh, prime minister or the finance minister to respond to Poiliev's question, uh, having this junior minister, uh, already we do see things will be interesting and uh, divertissant, as we say in French. Do you think that was a plan of the Federal Liberal Party? We know that the Prime Minister is at the United Nations, but was that a was that a schemed kind of scenario that they are not taking perhaps the Conservatives as, as seriously as they maybe they want them to take them? They do take them very seriously. They want to show that they don't take them seriously. There is a difference uh, and nuance in that. Uh, third question are very are much are very much planned, and so you don't go into those uh, questions uh, without any preparation. And they knew exactly who would answer the first question, whether it would be in French or in English. And it wasn't French. That also was interesting. Um, and uh, so yes, it is well prepared, and it's to signal that uh, yes. Uh, Maybe uh, Pierre Poiliev is not uh, at the level where he should be. Of course, that's not the case. And uh, he's a very uh, well-tuned uh, politician. Uh, but as you see, every detail will, will matter. It will make it interesting. You mentioned the first question being in French. Is that because the Conservatives are eyeing Quebec as a major battleground in the next federal election? 
Well, we saw that it was a case in the previous elections. And so uh, whether you are a majority or minority government, often it is decided in Quebec. And uh, yes, conservative, when they have been successful, uh, thinking about Stephen Harper, for instance, or even before Brian Mulroney, it's when they have made important gains uh, in Quebec. And the discourse, uh, the, the ideas presented by the conservative um, do do appeal to one portion, to an important segment of the population in Quebec. And in fact, I think that currently the Bloc Québécois should be quite nervous to see Pierre Poilier because uh, uh, many Quebecers uh, that usually vote for the Bloc Québécois uh, may vote for the Conservative, and that will benefit, of course, Pierre Poilier. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Jean-Vivre Tellier, professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about Trudeau versus Poiliev, and we'll get to see some of the fireworks very soon in the House of Commons. There have been rumblings over the last, I'd say, maybe number of months that the Prime Minister may be considering leaving politics in the next few years. Do you think that the challenge of trying to beat Poiliev has reinvigorated Justin Trudeau? Um, it seems so. Uh, the way Trudeau has been talking, he seems ready for a fight, and uh, I, I tend to believe it, believe him. If you look at what he is saying and how he behaves, he seems more engaged. There have been some uh, period uh, during the last years, especially during the pandemic, or uh, when we saw Trudeau less engaging and uh, uh, not as uh, into the matter as normally politicians would be. Uh, so I, I don't doubt that he is interested uh, to stay on the job, as we say. The issue for him is that will his party let him do so? And uh, what could be concerning for many liberals is that the opinion poll could show that uh, the conservatives gain, gain, gain momentum uh, while the liberals are, are falling in the polls. Uh, and there is this fatigue that we often see after three mandates, uh, so several years in power. And so perhaps Trudeau will be shown <laughs> to get out of, of, of the leadership. And so he will have also to battle, I think, within his own party to show that he is still the, the person in charge and the person that could be, that could give the next election to the, the, the liberal and a majority uh, government also. So uh, although he wants to uh, stay there, uh, it's not just for him to decide, but for the whole party. I think it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, Jean-Viev. Thank you very much for your insight into this, and uh, enjoy the show. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Jean-Viev Tellier is a professor in the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. We should not forget that NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is going to have a front row to this, and that he should not be ignored, given the confidence and supply agreement that the NDP has with the Liberals. So, you know, at any point, who knows? Singh could pull the rug out of the Liberals' Uh, from their feet and uh, and rock the boat anytime, uh, anytime soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are certainly two certainties in life. There's death and there is taxes. Uh, the question is, how much money do Canadians pay in taxes compared to things like food and housing and clothing. Well, the Fraser Institute has released a new study on the taxes Canadians, you and I, pay. It's called the Necessities of Life, the Canadian Consumer Tax Index 2022 edition. And it is stunning at the amount of money that we pay in taxes. Here to break it all down is Jake Fuss. He is an associate director with uh, fiscal studies with the Fraser Institute and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jake, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How about yourself? 
I'm good. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. So this study found that the average Canadian household paid more money in taxes in 2021 than it did on housing, food, and clothing combined. Uh, ouch. Yeah, I mean, it certainly can be challenging for Canadian families to calculate all the various taxes they pay. So that's why every year with this study, we calculate the total tax bill for them. Um, and like you said, in 2021, we found the average Canadian family paid roughly 43% of their annual income in taxes. And that's more than they, they spend on the basic necessities like food, clothing and housing combined. So this is really the single largest expense for Canadian families. Um, and this is a trend that we've seen for quite some time now, too. It's really not surprising when you think about it. I mean, we don't just pay income tax. There are a number of different taxes. I mean, we're, t we're taxed to death here. Well, we, we pay, you know, a, a lot of different types of taxes. Like you said, not just income taxes. Um, we also pay, you know, property taxes, fuel taxes, um, liquor taxes, payroll taxes. Um, there's several different um, our sales taxes as well. So there's several different types of taxes that Canadian families pay every year. Um, so mainly, you know, the goal of these calculations is just to add up the total amount for the average Canadian family because it's it's a little bit difficult when you go beyond you know just looking at the paycheck and calculating how much you pay in income taxes um, but it is certainly interesting to see you know over time um, you know we right now average Canadian families are spending roughly 43 percent of their annual income on taxes in total. Yeah, Jake Foss is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jake is an Associate Director of Fiscal Studies with the Fraser Institutes. They've released a report that shows that the average Canadian household paid more money in taxes last year than it did on housing, food and clothing combined. Um, you, you also looked at the situation in 1961, which was very much different from what we're seeing now. 33.5% of the average family's income went to pay taxes in 1961, compared to 565 that went to basic necessities. What is the biggest reason for the flip-flop that we see today? Yeah, I mean, cer cer certainly uh, things have changed since 1961 considerably. Um, you know, so ultimately, uh, the, the report examined, you know, how the tax bill and expenditures on basic necessities have changed over time. Um, you know, the reason why we start 1961 is because that's the earliest year that we have data for. Um, but taxes since 1961 have actually gone up by over 2000% for the average family. Um, that's much faster than other basic necessities like housing. I mean, that has also grown, grown considerably by over 1700%, for instance, over that 60 year period. Um, so, you know, taxes are outpacing these other items um, and consuming about 43% of the annual income. And there has been this flip-flop um, between, you know, how much basic necessities are consuming of your of your total annual income versus how much taxes are. Um, so, you know, there is certainly, you know, different developments too. You know, we've seen tax rates increase over time, for instance. That's one of the biggest things that was driving this change in, in the tax uh, bill for average Canadian families. Um, so we've seen things like income taxes, payroll taxes, and other things go up over time, especially since 1960s. Does it make sense that we we earn a lot more money debt now in comparison to 1961, so we're taxed at a higher rate? Is that Does the math kind of make sense? Yeah, so that certainly contributes to some of it. Um, the fact that Canadians have higher incomes than they did in the, in the 1960s on a nominal basis, that certainly contributes to you paying a higher tax bill as well. Um, however, it doesn't necessarily contribute to you paying a higher percentage of your income. Um, so that has more to do with the increase in tax rates over time. Uh, but there is that uh, combination of different factors. If you have higher income, you're also going to be paying higher taxes as well. Um, 
than than what you would have in the 1960s, for instance. Now, my best guess is this narrative of paying taxes uh, and the high rate of taxes that we've been paying over the last number of decades is this narrative is not going to change anytime soon, not with governments, you know, and how they're spending money or allocating funds to certain projects or promises these days. It, it seems like we're we're not going back to the, the you know the, the the cost cutting or tax cutting days it's spend 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 these these numbers might escalate in the years to come yeah it's certainly possible that they will escalate i mean the the federal and many provincial governments have reverted to running deficits to finance growing expenditures in recent years especially during covid um, but we know, you know, when you're running large deficits, that has to be paid for by taxes at some point in the future. Um, so what we call, you know, deficits is really a form of deferred taxation where we're pushing it down. Uh, we're kicking the can down the road. Um, so the total tax bill for the average family could increase even more if, um, you know, Canadian governments continue to run these deficits and ultimately have to raise taxes to pay back that debt um, or cover interest payments in the future. Now that we have interest rates rising and we also have debt accumulating for, for s- several different governments. Um, so we could see an escalation in the tax bill in the future for the average Canadian family. It's a fascinating yet a sobering at the same time. The Necessities of Life, the Canadian Consumer Tax Index 2022 edition uh, compiled and released by the Fraser Institute. Jake, appreciate the time. And uh, hopefully any of our listeners who want to uh, dive into the study, they can find it on the Fraser Institute website. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks again to Jake Fuss, Associate Director, Fiscal Studies with the Fraser Institute. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm looking at these numbers and they're mind-boggling. The amount of money that we pay in tax, and I'm not just talking income tax, whether it's HST or gas taxes or you name it, we're paying through the nose. The Canadian Consumer Tax Index, which tracks the total tax bill of the average Canadian family from 1961 to 2021, including all types of taxes, that bill has increased by more than 2,400% since 1961. So by comparison, uh, you look at other expenditures for the average Canadian family between 61 and and 2021, housing, it's gone up by 1,700%. So taxes usurping that. Clothing, 643%. Again, we're paying way more in taxes than we do for clothing. Food, 790%. Even the consumer price index does not have as rapid of an increase than what we've paid in terms of the tax man. 2,400% in terms of our tax bill, consumer price index over the last 50 years has risen by 800%, 802% to be exact. The numbers are mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. And the worst part about it is governments continue to spend, and you know that they're going to ask for that money back in some form of tax. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a really cool story. If you have a son or a daughter, a child, a grandchild who is into video games, and you have a sense that they might be good at making these video games, this is something you want to pay attention to because Mohawk College is launching a unique video game design program. And here to talk about it is Dr. Angela Stukator, the special advisor who co-designed this new game design program at Mohawk College. Dr. Stukator, good morning. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Tell us about this new and exciting program. Well, we are launching a three-year 
Advanced Diploma in Game Design at Mohawk College, September 2023. So we're very excited. We'll be at Comic-Con this weekend in Hamilton um, with information about this and all the other amazing programs the Mohawk offers in its Creative Industries cluster. I would imagine there is a massive demand for this kind of program. There is, and um, it has intensified over COVID with everybody sitting inside, (laughs) looking at their devices for something that they can interact and engage with. So um, the gaming industry is enormous, you know, over $160 billion in the global industry. So we, uh, we think it's a perfect opportunity um, and Hamilton is so well situated in terms of its um, investment in both culture, art, and technology that um, there is, we believe, a real great opportunity for a community college to be serving its community and training new, a new generation of gamers. What kind of qualities would a video game designer need to have to enter this program and learn how to do all the things that you you learn how to do? Well, it is very collaborative. Um, So we we need people uh, who are passionate about gaming, first and foremost. Um, Board games to video games, uh, we're going to cover the whole spectrum. So they have to be collaborative, cooperative, um, lots of, of soft skills, um, critical problem sol- solving, um, design thinking, good communication skills, uh, patience, because it's a very iterative process. Uh, so all of the, the basic components that allow people to think about design in the broadest sense, and to hone it down into how can we make engaging, entertaining, or educational games that speak to the people, um, to, the, to a wide variety of different kinds of people. So we're trying to, to blow out the um, association of, of games with just AAA games and say, look, there is opportunities for us to look at different ways in which gamification and gameplay can be um, democratized. Yeah, really, the, the sky is the limit. There's also a special focus on this new game design program at Mohawk College that looks at equity, diversity, and inclusion. Why was it important to institute that kind of mindset into this program? Oh, from the get-go, uh, Mohawk College and... Um, the associate dean, Lisa, Dr. Lisa Funnel, uh, and the dean and I were very, very specific um, in our target to have equity, diversity, and inclusion at the forefront of, of this new diploma. And the reason is because there's a reputation in the game industry that it's still very much uh, a white male-dominated industry. And we wanted to make sure that our program started by saying, look, we want everybody here as students. We want women. We want men. We want um, Indigenous. We want people of color. We want the richness of the diversity of our Canadian experience reflected in the games that our students will be leaders in producing. It's been very, very um, much 
circulating around this notion of not mirroring um, industry, but rather modeling uh, new and contemporary uh, approaches to what will make a difference in the future of gaming. That's an awesome mindset to have, and it's going to lead to some amazing games coming down the pipe out of this program. Dr. Stukator, we'll have to leave it there as we're out of time. I really appreciate your time today. No problem. It was a pleasure speaking to you, and we'll see you at Comic-Con. Bye-bye. You got it, Dr. Angela Stukator, special advisor who co-designed the new game design program at Mohawk College. Registration will open in October. The program launches in September of 2023. I'm imagining they're going to have to beat back potential students with a stick. It's going to be so popular. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's been a few days now since we said our last farewell to Queen Elizabeth II, and even so, we're we're learning about numerous and wondrous connections that she made during her illustrious reign at the top of the British monarchy. And our next guest is really no exception, a near and dear friend of the Queen for more than three decades. Monty Roberts is a renowned horse trainer who enjoyed a more than 30-year friendship with the Queen and is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Man Who Listens to Horses. Mr. Roberts, hello, how are you today? I'm fine, and you? I'm good. When you heard that Queen Elizabeth II passed away on September the 8th, what were some of the first things that came to your mind? Well, um, I was stunned. I knew that there was problems and I knew that she was being cared for. But the last day or so before she died, um, it sounded a little better, like it was going to be okay. And then all of a sudden I was actually working in the round pen and I watched my daughter Debbie and, and my wife Pat come together at the top of the round pen there while I was working and I saw a very somber look on their faces and I finished my work with that horse and I, I just stood there frozen because I had a strange feeling that maybe the Queen had passed away and they just both looked straight at me and said she's gone and um, I can't begin to tell you what a sh shock that was to my system. I know she's 96 and there, there's no reason that I had to be shocked about it. Um, there were those concerns in the last days, but my complete and utter uh, cooperation with the Queen for 33 years just consumed me and I wasn't ready for it at any time and never would have been ready for it. That's completely understandable. You were invited to attend the Queen's funeral on Monday. What was that day like for you having to say goodbye to a dear friend? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I got ready for it and I felt like I could handle it okay. Um, I'll be all right and I, I'm not going to cry. I'm here with a lot of very famous people and you know, we stood there as they brought the coffin through. And when the coffin was directly in front of me, I really didn't cry. I I didn't, uh, you know, breathe funny and, and pulse like you do when you cry. But the water just ran out of my eyes. And I spoke with a doctor after that who happens to be a friend of mine as well. And he said, that is inner pain that you don't really allow to show on the surface. 
but that is just pain running out of your body and you don't have any chance to change that. So I had to sit down. I had to take some Kleenex and keep my shirt dry. It was a very strange feeling. I've never had it happen before, nor have I ever met anybody that said they had it happen before. But I, I'm going to say that, you know, a glass of water ran out of my eyes, just <laughs> ran out of my eyes. Uh, uh, but several things happened that told me how strongly the queen has influenced the family to continue their support of the things that I wanted to do um, through the oncoming people that will take charge from here on out. And it's so gratifying to know that because I know then that the horses will benefit from what the queen has been trying to do for these 33 years. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Monty Roberts, renowned horse trainer who enjoyed a long-lasting friendship of more than three decades with Queen Elizabeth II. He's also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Man Who Listens to Horses. When did you first meet Her Majesty, and how did that come about? Well, it was in 1989, and it came about as uh, Her Majesty read two magazine articles that were done here in the United States. And uh, both of those magazine articles were from people that were here and saw an open house that we had here at the farm. And one was from Florida and one was from California. And they wrote basically the exact same thing. And the queen read it and she just couldn't believe it because it was an absolute upside down turnover of all of the things that were considered uh, real in the world of training horses, taking the violence completely out of the process of training young horses. And um, nobody had ever seen it in the public's view uh, before that time. So the queen received a lot of messages that it was phony, that there were tricks played, but she stayed with it and sent me on the road for 30 days in her car with my wife, Pat, and, and our rider. And um, I did 98 horses on the road after doing 23 horses at Windsor Castle for Her Majesty. And it went beautifully. There were no failures. It went as I suggested it would go. And Her Majesty seemed to stand about six foot six uh, instead of five foot two. She was very proud of all of that and then began to say things like there has to be a book and I want this to be taken to the world. And in these 33 years, I have traveled to 41 countries and the number of demonstrations that I did in the 41 countries is probably over 250 or 300 demonstrations with tens of thousands of people watching it without a failure. And um, that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And uh, the Queen was very proud of that.
Wow, it is an amazing story, an incredible friendship, and a lifelong uh, book of memories that you have with the Queen and your exploits with your horse training technique. Mr. Roberts, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing some of your stories, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me invited in. Thank you, Monty Roberts, renowned horse trainer. What an unbelievable career who enjoyed a more than three-decade-long friendship with the Queen. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Our final summer cruise and series event is now at hand, and it comes up later on this weekend. That is Hamilton Comic Con. It happens Saturday from 10 to 5, Sunday from 10 to 4 at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. And here to talk about it is the co-organizer of Hamilton Comic Con, Chris Drabowski. Chris, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick. Good morning. I'm very well. What can convention goers expect to see this coming weekend at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum? Well, we're finally back. If you can believe it, the last time we held the event pre-pandemic was 2019. So we're uh, we're really excited to be back at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. If you've never been to a Comic-Con before, it's something you must check out this weekend. Uh, tickets available online or at the door. And uh, if you've been to Comic-Con before, you know what to expect. Over 150 vendors everything from uh, vintage comics to new comics, video games, superheroes, costumes, you name it, uh, Hamilton Comic Con will have it this weekend. We've had a number of events in this city that have recorded a crazy amount of people because of the pent-up demand, uh, You know, given the fact that over the last couple of years they weren't able to attend things like Comic Con or the Winona Peach Festival, you name the events, they couldn't go to it physically. With that in mind, what kind of turnout are you expecting this weekend? Ticket sales um, from previous years are definitely up uh, this time around. Uh, the turnout will be big. Um, Comic-Con, um, ideally, you know, there, there's lineups. There, there's always waiting in lines at Comic-Cons. But, uh, yeah, we expect a, a really strong turnout uh, this weekend. We have a, a great celebrity lineup. We, we have a number of folks flying in from uh, California over the course of today and tomorrow. People like Dean Kane from uh, Lois and Clark and, of course, R.J. Mitt from Breaking Bad. Um, so, yeah, we're... Uh, we're excited to, to greet fans at the door. What is the best way to experience Hamilton Comic Con? If there is a you know a a sneak peek or kind of a uh, not necessarily a shortcut, but the most efficient and enjoyable way to experience it. Wear comfortable shoes. You do a lot of walking. <laughs> uh, the great part of, of the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. There's free parking. There's not a lot of venues in in Hamilton and and the Greater Niagara Horseshoe that that offer free parking at the venue. So wear comfortable shoes. Um, be prepared for uh, for a long day. There's there's lots to see and do. So obviously a, a paid ticket gets you into the door. But there's there's so many free things happening uh, throughout the weekend. Free Q and A panels and there's just there's movie cars. And what's great about that venue as well is you get access into uh, the Warplane Museum as well. So it's almost like a two-for-one. Absolutely. Chris Drabowski is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Chris is the co-organizer of Hamilton Comic Con. You can check out all the information, whether it's exhibits uh, or to get tickets, HamiltonComicCon.com. Is there a celebrity or two that you're most looking forward to seeing at the, the Warplane Heritage Museum? With the pandemic, uh, things there's websites like Cameo that came out, and you mentioned it earlier before I was live. Um, there's no other better experience than meeting your favorite celebrity or hero that you've watched on TV for many years than meeting them and shaking their hand in person. Um, for me, we've got to meet a lot of celebrities over the years, but uh, just being able to meet these folks and, and under one roof, um, there's 15 to 20 celebrities at Hamilton Comic Con. 
Um, I don't specifically have a favorite, but it, it's just great watching fans and patrons walk into the Warplane Heritage Museum, meet their favorite celebrity, get a, an 8x10 photo signed or, or get a picture with their celebrity. So not a specific one in mind, but uh, whether you're born in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or, or 90s or 2000s, there, there's definitely something for everyone. Are these celebrities, that, I mean, they do a lot of these kind of shows, uh, you know, across North America. Are they easy to deal with? Are they easy to convince to say, hey, come back to Hamilton? Not really. Every every celebrity that we, we tend to, to work with or, or bring into Comic-Con is a working actor, so their schedules differ. Um, of course, being in the U.S., it's not easy um, to travel, you know, uh, across the U.S. and come into Canada um, it's a six to seven hour flight, so we're we're grateful that that these celebrities do make time for us. And you know, a lot of times we've tried to book a certain celebrity for five or six years, and they're finally able to uh, to attend the convention. Somebody like Dean Kane, who uh, who's definitely on the Comic Con circuit, not necessarily always available, still a working actor. So uh, it just depends on schedules. And and this time around, um, we were grateful and lucky to get a, a few of the names that are coming in. It's going to be an exciting weekend at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum. Hamilton Comic Con is back to an in-person event Saturday 10 to 5, Sunday 10 to 4. All the details online at hamiltoncomiccon.com. Chris, thanks for the time. Best of luck with the show this weekend. Rick, appreciate it. Have a good morning. You too. That's Chris Drabowski, co-organizer of Hamilton Comic Con. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.